Section number five of Told in a French Garden. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirby Bonds. Told in a French Garden by Mildred Aldrich. Chapter number five The Sculptor's Story Unto This End. THE TALE OF A VIRGIN PART One. It was on August 26th that we were first sure that the Allied forces and the German army had actually come in contact. It seemed impossible for us to realize it, but in the afternoon the doctor, the lawyer, and the youngster took one of the cars and made a run to the northeast. The news they brought back did not at all coincide with the hopeful tone of the morning papers. In fact, it was not only evident that the fall of Namor had been followed almost immediately by that of Mons and Charleroi, but that the German hordes were well over the French frontier, and advancing rapidly, and the Allied armies simply flying before them. The odd part was that though the youngster said they had been only run out fifty miles, they had heard the guns. And the doctor thinks, he added, under his breath, that we may be able to stick it out to the last day of the month. Anyway, I advise you girls to look over your kits. We may fly in a hurry, such of us as must fly. However, we managed to get through dinner quite gaily. We simply could not realize the menace, and the doctor evidently meant that we should not. He was in gayer spirits than he had been since the days of the great discussions, and after the few facts he had brought back were given us, he kept the talk on other matters, until the sculptor, who had been lying back in his chair blowing smoke rings in the air, stretched himself into his most graceful position, and called attention even to his pose before he threw his cigarette far from him with a fine gesture settled his handsome head into his clasped hands, and began. I had been ten years abroad. In all that time I had been idle, prosperous, and wretched. Every time fate wrenched my heart with one of her long, thin, pitiless hands, she recompensed me with what the world calls good luck. Every hope I had cherished failed me. Every faith I had harbored deserted me. Every venture in which neither heart nor soul was concerned flourished and flaunted its success in the face of the world, where I was considered a very fortunate man. In the ten years of my exile I had traveled much, had been in contact with all kinds of people, and served some, and tried in vain to be concerned for them while I served. If it had been my fate to make no friends, it was within my choice to never be alone. I had that in my memory which I hoarded, and yet with which I would not allow myself to be deliberately alone. The most horrible hours of my life were those when, toward morning, the rest of the world, all the world save me, having no past to escape, no enticing phantom to flee, went peacefully off to bed and I was left alone in the night to drug memory, fight off thought, outwit imagination by any means that I might, 
and some of them were desperate enough. Ten years had passed thus. Another tenth of August had come round. Only a man who has but one anniversary in his life, the backward and forward shadows of which make an unbroken circle over the whole year, can appreciate my existence. One cannot escape such a date. You may never speak of it. You may forswear calendars, abjure newspapers, refuse to date a letter. You may even lose days in a drunken stupor. Still, there is that in your heart and your brain which keeps the reckoning. The hour will strike in spite of you, when the day comes round the dial of the year. I had been living for some time in a city far distant from my native land. Half the world stretched on either side of me, and the spot I tried to forget, and which floated forever like a vision between me and reality. I had remained longer than usual in this city, for the simple reason that it was the hot season, and while the natives could stand it by day, visitors, unused to the heat, were forced to sleep by day and wander abroad at night, a condition that made it possible for me to feel my fellow-men about me nearly the entire twenty-four hours. It was night. I was sitting alone on the balcony of my room, looking down on to the crowded bridges of the city where the throngs were passing, and filled my eyes and mind. It was the very hour at which I had last seen her. There was no clock in sight. I always guarded against that in selecting my room. I had long ceased to carry a watch. Yet I knew the hour. I had been sitting there for hours watching the crowd. I had not been drinking. I had long ago abandoned that. No stimulant could stir the fixed regret, no narcotic numb my full sense of it. Sleep, whether I rose to it or fell to it, only brought me dreams of her. Desperate nourishing a great misery in a nature that resented it, even while cherishing it, had made me a conscious monomaniac. Fate had thwarted me and distorted me, I had become jealous and morbid, bitterly reviling my hurt, but violently preventing its healing. There was a moon, just as there had been that night. Only now it fell on a many-bridged river, across which were ghostly cypress trees rising along the hillside to a strangely outlined church behind ruined fortifications. I was wondering against my will at what hour that moon rose over the distant New England village, which came before me in a vision that wiped out the wooded heights of reality. Suddenly all the pain dropped away from me. I drew a long breath in amazement. Where was the weight under which I had staggered mentally all these years? Whence came the peace that so suddenly descended upon me? In an instant it had passed and I could only remember my bitter mood of ten years as if it had been a dream that I had lived so long unconsoled by that great healer, time. As the torturing jealousy dropped from me, a gentle sadness took its place. In an instant my mind was made up. I would go back. This idea, which had never come to me in ten years, now seemed perfectly natural. I would return at once to that far-off village where, for a brief hour, 
I had dwelt in a fool's paradise, through which my way had lain but a brief span, and where I had passed like the fabled bird that floats through heaven but cannot light. I remember but little of the journey home, save that it was long, and that I slept much. But whether it was months or years, I never knew. I seemed to be making up what I had lost in ten years. Time occupied itself in restoring the balance I had taken so much pains to upset. It was night when I reached the place at last. I found it as I had left it. Had a magic sleep settled there, it could not have been less changed. I was recognized in the small bare office of the one tavern. I felt that my sudden appearance surprised no one, but I did not wonder why. Oddly enough, I never asked a question. I had not even questioned myself as to what I expected to find. Years afterwards, I was convinced in reviewing the matter that my soul had known from the first. I dined alone, quite calmly, after which I stepped out into the starlight. I turned up the hill and struck into the familiar road I had so often traveled in the old days. It led toward the river and along the steep bank of the rapid, noisy stream. The chill wind of an early autumn night moaned sadly in the tall trees, and the dead leaves under my feet rustled a sad accompaniment to my thoughts, which at last, unhooded, flew back to the past. Below rushed the river, whose torrent had ever been an accompaniment to all my recollections of her, as inseparable from them as the color of her eyes or the tones of her voice. I could not but contrast my present calm with the mad humor in which I had last rushed down the slope I was so quietly climbing. As I went forward I began to ask myself, why? I could not answer that, but I began to hurry. Suddenly I stopped. The moon had emerged above the trees on the opposite side of the river. It struck and illumined something quite above me. I was standing exactly where I had stood on that fatal 10th of August so many years before. I came to my senses as if by an electric shock. At last everything was clear to me. At last I understood whence I had gone all my vanity and jealousy. At last I understood the spell of peace that had settled on me in that moonlit 10th of August in that far-off city. My burden had passed through the valley of the shadow of death with her, for I was standing at the door of her tomb. I did not question. I knew. I comprehended. In no other way could I have found such calm. Though I flung myself on the shining marble steps that led in the moonlight up to the top of the knoll where the tomb stood, I had no tears to shed. The present floated still further away. Even the rush of the torrent died out of my ears. Once more it seemed to me that lovely day in May, when we three had marched shoulder to shoulder down the city street, that spring day in the early sixties when the North was sending her flower to fight for a united country, again I felt the warm sunshine on my head, 
Once more I heard the ringing cheers, saw the floating flags and the faces of women who wept, as well as women who smiled in the throngs that lined the street. Just as in all my life it had been his emotions and his enthusiasms that led me, it was his excitement that impelled me forward at this moment. His was the hand that in my school days at college, in our bohemian days abroad, had swept my responsive nature as a master hand strikes a harp, and made harmonies or discords at his will. Or, I should say, according to his mood. I used to think in those days that he never willfully wronged anyone. But I had to own also that he never deliberately sacrificed himself for anyone. And if I were the victim of his temperament, he was no less so. But he was an artist. I was not. All things, either good or bad, were merely material to him. With me it was different. He and I were alone in the world. But beside us marched that May morning, with the glory of youth on his handsome but weak face, one whose baptism of fire was to make him a hero, who had else been remembered a coward. The story of the girl he had wronged, and fear of whom had even reconciled his family to his enlisting, was common property, and had been for several seasons. There was a child, too, a little daughter, fondly loved but unacknowledged, the fame of whose childish beauty many a heedless voice had already sung. He, poor youngster, looked on his all that morning. Once more I saw the flag-draped house, where his mother waved a brave farewell to him. But there was another later picture in my mind. Again I heard the blare of the band before us as it flung its satire of the girl I left behind me into the spring air. I saw once more in my mind the child with her floating red-gold curls raised above the crowd on the shoulders of tall men. Her eyes were too young for tears, and for that matter tears came to her but seldom in later years. And the lips that shouted, Goodbye, smiled, unconscious with bravery, as she swung her hat with its symbolic colors above her shining head. That was the picture that three of us carried to the front. We left him, all his errors redeemed by a noble death, with his face turned up to the stars, as silent, as mysterious as they, after our first battle. From the horrors of that night, we too came away bound by an oath to care for that child. Again my memory shifted to the days that found her a woman, fair, beautiful, dainty, her father's daughter in looks, but inheriting from a rare mother a peculiar strength of character, a moral force rarely found with such a temperament and such beauty. We had aided to raise her as became the child of her father, whose story she knew as soon as she was able to understand, but she knew it from the lips of the brave mother who cherished his memory. Until she was a grown woman, it was I, however, who of her two self-appointed guardians had watched over her. 
children did not interest him. He had married some years before that time, married well with an eye to a calm, comfortable future, as became an artist who could not be hampered by the need of money. Indeed, it was not until he knew that I was to marry her that he really looked at her. And I, with all my experience of him, simply because I was never able to understand the dual nature, failed at that fatal hour when we stood together beside our protege to apply to the situation the knowledge that years of experience should have taught me. I was so bound up in my own feelings that I failed to remember that, until then, I had never had a great emotion that his nature had not acted as a lens in the kindling. Then, too, there was a dense sense of the conventional, a logical enough birthright in my make-up. I, who had known him so long, so well, seemed, nevertheless, when he married, to have fancied there was some hocus-pocus in the ceremony which should make a definite change in a maid's character, as well as a presumable change in his way of life. It must have been that there, in the open, at the foot of the knoll, I slept, as one does the first night after a long-awaited death, when the relief that pain is past and suspense ended deadens grief. She was no longer in this world of torture. That helped me. The next I knew, it was the sun, and not the moon, which was shining on me. The wind had stilled its sobbing in the trees. Only the rushing of the river sounded in my ears. I rose slowly and mounted the steps. A tiny white marble mosque of wonderful beauty, for he who erected it was one of the world's great artists whose works will live to glorify his name and his art when all his follies shall have been forgotten, stood in a court paved with marble. It was encircled with low coping of the whitest of stone. Over this low wall vines were already growing, and the woodbine that was mingled with it was stained with those glorious tints in which nature says to life, Even death is beautiful. The wide bronze door on either side were open. I accepted the fact without even wondering why, or asking myself who, in opening them, had discovered my presence. I entered. For a brief time I stood there once more within the room where she lay. An awful peace fell on my soul, as if her soul had whispered in the words we had so often read together, I lie so composedly now in my bed. I knew at last, as I gazed, that all her life, and all mine as well, had been to his profit, that out of this, too, he had wrought some of his greatness. The interior of the vault was of red marble, and such of chiseling that was done there seemed wonderful to me even in my frame of mind. I took it all in, through unwilling, though fascinated eyes. I have never seen it since. I can never forget it. Yet art is, and always has been, so much to me, that I could not help, even in my strangely wrought-up mental condition, comprehending and admiring his scheme and the masterly manner in which he had worked it out. 
At my feet, as I stood on the threshold, was an elaborate scroll engraved on the stone and surrounded with a wreath of leaves that vied with the tombs of the old world. As I gazed at it, and read the Gothic letters in which it was set forth that this monument was erected in the adoration of this woman, how well I remembered the day when we had crouched together over those stones in the crypt at Certosa, to admire the chiseling of Donatello, which had inspired this. There was a space left for the signature of the artist, which would, I knew, some day be written there boldly enough. In the center stood the sarcophagus. I felt its presence, though my eyes avoided it. Above on the wall were the words borne along by carved angels. My love, she sleeps. Oh, may her sleep, as it was lasting, so be deep. And I seemed to hear her voice intone the words as I had heard them from her lips so many times. And then my eyes fell on her. I, on her, stretched at full length in her warm and glorious tomb. For above her mortal remains slept her effigy, wrought with all the skill of a great art. I had feared to look upon it, but having looked, I felt I could never tear myself away from its peace and loveliness. The long folds of the drapery fell straight from the small round throat to the tiny unshod feet, and so wonderfully was it wrought that it seemed as if the living, beautiful flesh of the slender body was still quick beneath it, the exquisite hands that I knew so well, so delicate, and yet so strong, were gently crossed upon her breast, and her arms held a long-stemmed lily, emblem of purity, and it looked to me there like a martyr's palm. Perhaps it was the pale reflection from the red walls, but the figure seemed too real to be mere stone. I forgot the irony of the fact that I was merely seeing her through his eyes, the eyes of the man who had robbed me. I felt only her presence. I fell on my knees. I flung my arms across the beautiful form, no colder to my embrace than had been the living woman. As I recoiled from the death-like touch, my eyes fell on the words carved on the face of the sarcophagus, and once more it was like the voice that was hushed in my ears. I pray to God that she may lie forever with unopened eyes, while the dim-sheeted ghosts go by. Amen. I said, with all my heart, to the words he had carved above her. For what, after the fever of such a life, could be so welcome to her as dreamless eternal silence, in which there would be no more passion, no more struggling, no more love? And if I wished with all my soul that the great surprise of death might for her have been peace and silence, did I not bar myself, as well as him, from the hope of heaven? How long I stood there with hungry eyes, devouring the marble effigy of her I so loved, now tortured by its fidelity, now punished by its coldness, I never knew. Sometimes I noticed the changing of the light, the shifting of the shadows, as the sun swung steadily upward but it was a subconscious observation 
which did not recall me to myself and the present. Back, back turned my thoughts to the past. Here, where she now lay in her gorgeous tomb, had then stood an arbor, and below had roared the rushing river. It was the night of our wedding. Then, as now on this very spot, I had looked down on that fair pale face, and then it had given back a gaze as lifeless as this. I had missed my bride from the little throng in the quaint house beyond. I had stolen out to seek her. Instinctively I had turned to the old arbor above the river, where her hours of meditation had always been passed. It was there that I found her as a child, when I came to bring her father's dying message. It was there I had asked her to become my wife. It was there we three had first stood together. For a week before the wedding she had been in a strange mood, tearless but nervous and sad. Still it had not seemed to me an unnatural mood from such a woman on the eve of her marriage. Fate is ironical. I remembered that I was serenely happy as I sped up the hill in search of her, and so sure that I knew where to find her. Light scudding clouds crossed the track of the moon, which, with a broadly smiling face, rolled up the heavens at a spinning pace, now appearing, now disappearing, behind the flying clouds. I was humming gaily as I strode along the narrow path. Nothing tugged at my heartstrings to warn me of approaching sorrow. There was no signal in all nature to prepare me for the end in a complete shipwreck of all my dreams. The peace about me gave no hint of its cynicisms. Nothing, either within or without, hinted that my hours of happiness and content were running out rapidly to the last sand. I had reached the shallow steps that led up the knoll to the arbor, and at that moment the clouds were swept off the face of the moon, and the white light fell full on her. But she was not alone. She rested in the arms of my friend, as, God help me, she had never rested in mine, in an abandon that was only too eloquent. What was said? Who but God knows that now? What do men like us, who have thought themselves one in all things until one love rends them asunder, say at such a time? As for me, I cannot recall a word. I did not even see his face. I think he saw mine no more. We seemed to see into the soul of each other, through the very heart of that frail woman between us, that slender creature in the bridal dress, who sank down before us as if colliding passions of two strong men had killed her. It was he who raised her up. His hands placed her in my arms. No need to say that she was blameless. I knew all that. It was only fate, after all, that I blamed. Yet the fatalist is human. He suffers in living like other men, sometimes more because he refuses to struggle in the clutches of chance. As I gazed down into her white face, I heard the steps of my friend, even above the roaring of the river as he strode down the hillside out of my life. And I know not even today which was the bitterest grief, the loss of my faith in being loved, or the passing from my heart of that man.
of the pain of the night that followed, only the silence and our own hearts knew. Love and passion are so twined in some hours of life that one cannot distinguish in himself the one from the other. Into my keeping, to have and to hold, the law had given this beautiful woman. Until death should us part, I loved her, but out of her heart, at once stronger and weaker than mine, my friend had barred me. It is not in hours like these that all men can be sane. I thought of what might have been if they had not met that night, and my ignoble side craved ignorance of that chance or the brutality to ignore it. I looked down into that cold face as I laid her from the arms that had borne her down the hill, laid her on what was to have been her nuptial couch, and closed the door between us and all the world. We were together, alone, at last. I had dreamed of this hour. Here was its realization. I watched the misery of remembrance dawn slowly on her white face. I pitied her as I gazed at her, yet my whole being cried out in rage at its own pity. On her trembling lips I seemed to see his kisses. In her frightened eyes I saw his image. The shudder that shook her whole body as her eyes held mine confessed him, and that confession kept me at bay. All that night I sat beside her. What mad words I uttered a merciful nature never let me recall. In the chill dawn I fled from her presence. The width of the world had lain between us, me and this woman whom I had worshipped, of whom a consuming jealousy had made ten years of my life a mad fever, which only her death had cured. Saner men have protested against the same situation that ruined me, and yet, even in my reasoning moments like this, I knew that to have rebelled would have been to have forced a tragic climax before the hour at which fate had fixed it. End of the Sculptor's Story, Part 1 Recording by Kirby Bonds